Welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, go to PCAPaintEd.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all you non-members out there, sign up for our free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the Apple Store and Google Play. This episode is sponsored by Bayer and Federated Insurance. Welcome to the Painter Marketing Mastermind Podcast, a show created to help painting company owners build a thriving painting business that does well over $1 million in annual revenue. I'm your host, Brandon Pierpont, founder of Painter Marketing Pros and creator of the popular PCA educational series, Learn, Do, Grow, Marketing for Painters. In each episode, I'll be sharing proven tips, strategies, and processes from leading experts in the industry on how they found success in their painting business. We will be interviewing owners of the most successful painting companies in North America and learning from their experiences. On this episode of the Painter Marketing Mastermind podcast, we host repeat guest Jason Paris, the founder and co-owner of Paris Painting and Olive Holdings. Jason discusses his journey from solopreneur to building a highly successful team that runs multiple businesses doing well north of $20 million in annual revenue. Jason takes a deep dive into Olive Holdings and an exciting new partnership opportunity that Olive is now offering to qualified painting company owners who are looking to aggressively grow their businesses. He shares why the painting industry is so ripe for business-minded painting company owners to succeed and some ways that other company owners can take advantage of current opportunities. If you want to learn more about the topics we discussed in this podcast and how you can use them to grow your painting business, visit paintermarketingpros.com forward slash podcast for free training, as well as the ability to schedule a personalized strategy session for your painting company. Again, that URL is paintermarketingpros.com forward slash podcast. Jason, thank you for coming on again to the Painter Marketing Mastermind podcast. Here we are. Glad to be back. Here we are. So Jason, remind uh, all of our listeners, they, they probably don't know who you are. Jason Paris of Paris Painting. Who are you? What's your company? <laughs> I, what? Uh, so I have Paris Painting out of kind of the Minneapolis area of Minnesota. We are a large residential repaint uh, contractor. Um, that's my company. I am also a person outside of my company. Okay. So Jason a, Paris is separate in some ways from Paris painting. Completely separate. Yeah. Okay, my identity right. is not Paris painting. It is okay. shares my last name. It is, I started the company just kind of found, I founded it. So start yep. that off, but um, I am a father. I'm a husband. I have four kids been married for 10 plus years. Uh, I chair the PCA in my free time to volunteer. I like ultra endurance events. So I did an Ironman last year and in one week I'll be doing a 50 mile trail run, gearing up for a hundred this fall. And what else about me? Uh, when I was in like middle pain. school, when I was a sophomore, we moved high schools and I would take my lunch tray and I would sit in the bathroom until the bell rang. Cause I was so, uh, had so much social anxiety. I didn't want to sit with anybody. I actually was mostly scared about sitting by myself at lunch. So I would just sit in the bathroom. So that last one was good to cut me down at size. I felt like I was breaking a little bit in some of those things. Yeah. No, the last one did cut you down pretty effectively. I would say, um, 
It's a sad story. I don't think it's an unusual story. And you got me kind of thinking, oh, we should talk about childhood bullying or something, but <laughs> I'm going to pull it back. All um, the childhood traumas. Yeah. The, the childhood traumas. We all, we all have, you know, terrible parents and childhoods if we allow ourselves to, oh, to blame all of our issues on that. Rain it back, rain it back in. Brandon. Yeah. But uh, yeah. All right. So chair of the PCA, you have a large painting company. How large is your painting company? Uh, it's eight figures. So 10 million top line. We did separate out the handyman division about three, four years ago. So we actually acquired a company that was doing about $600,000 of revenue of handyman light remodeling. Um, kind of married the logos together. So Paris Painting logo is an orange house. There's then two gray houses. And then we started a sister company, Haven Builders, Blue House, two gray houses. Uh, that's about $10 million separate as well. So about $20 million top line between those two business units. Um, and then, but yeah, that's Paris Painting in a nutshell, what we do. So let's talk about Olive Holdings and, and kind of how that whole thing's set up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Olive Holdings is a holding company. Um, that's actually the hat I'm wearing today. So that was well-timed. Um, Olive is just the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So I started this with a bunch of guys about three, four years ago. And it was never meant to be the public face, but we just went rolled with it because it kind of seems like a cool brand at this point. Um, but the idea was that there's so much opportunity in the trades that we would start a holdings company that was strictly focused on, on trades businesses, small trades businesses, and whether they were starting them or acquiring them, bringing them through to professionalization because overall contracting has not gone through this renaissance in the US as opposed to many other industries that have like farming, uh, coffee shops, breweries, et cetera, have all kind of gone through that professionalization renaissance. Contracting has not. So we did that and we formed it in 2019, uh, January 1st, about midway through that year is when we purchased Haven Builders. It was about $600,000 company at that time, top line revenue. And I've since scaled it to looking to do eight figures this year. 2020, we purchased a company called Paperboy Marketing which was a flyer delivery company in the Twin Cities, uh, does a lot of work with trade services. So that was a great hire or great purchase one for the hire. So we kind of, in a sense, bought the founder uh, of that company and he's now our director of marketing at All Holdings. And then it was de-risking a primary vendor for Paris Painting and now Haven Builders uh, to make sure that maintained stability. And then it's just a nice business unit to hold. It's our lowest top line revenue. It's about a million bucks, give or take. Uh, but it has really nice margins and it's really data intensive. So we like those types of businesses. Um, and then January, so that was 2019, 2020, the big excitement for 2021 was all purchased majority equity in Paris painting. Uh, and the way we did that, the way we structured it is I had started an LLC called Paris services LLC. when I first started with a paintbrush and a dream and, uh, we ended up starting a new company called Paris painting LLC. And all of Holdings uh, got equity in Paris Painting LLC, and Paris Services has equity in Paris Painting LLC. But all of Holdings is the operating partner, so they're the ones that drive the business and are ultimately responsible for delivering shareholder profits. So at that point, I stepped completely out of the company. Uh, I no longer had a job at Paris Painting, uh, but I did go to all of Holdings and say, "Hey, maybe I could have a job here." And so that's what I do now. I'm one of five primary shareholders for all of holdings. So there are four other guys that we started it with. And uh, that's the holdings in a, not quite, that's the start of the nutshell. <clears throat> so then we have uh, partner companies that we're taking minority stake in initially to help stabilize their asset and scale the revenue. 
And these are focused to painting companies at the moment. And so Ferris Painting is kind of the operating partner model. We have two painting companies that we're minority partnerships in. And uh, right now we have three LOIs that we're in the process of due diligence to see if there's others that'll be good fits. But that's what we're doing um, through Olive Ventures, uh, which is owned by Olive Holdings and Olive Capital. Um, Olive Ventures could start as a minority equity holder and then tier, tier step into a majority owner, at which point it would take over as the operating partner. So that's we're, we're going to put out a cap table for anyone who's been listening to the to to uh, all of this. Yep. No. So all of capital, all of holdings owns all of ventures. All of capital is the capital arm of what we do. That's investing in small businesses and then doing real estate investment as well. So we have three uh, big apartment builds that we're doing uh, right now, and that's a way that we kind of put our cash to use uh, from the distributions of of the holdings. Nice. So yeah, I, <clears throat> I see that I'm actually holding your business card here. Jason, well, there it is. My, uh, it is. my virtual what background it screws it up. You are, um, well, it doesn't actually say your official title. It says Jason Paris, Synergy and Memes. That's what I do. Yeah, yeah so you're, you're about the Synergy and Memes. You actually are you familiar memes. with Synergy? Yeah. I, don't, I don't know about Synergy. I know a little bit about me. I think, I think my sister sent me a meme one time. So yep. I kind of know something about those. Yeah. You taught me how to, how to short code them um, on the phone, which I didn't know how you could do that. So that was kind of neat. But yes, you're good at the synergy and the memes. Um, so I want to, I want to kind of in that whole uh, segment that you just gave there, which was impressive. One thing really stood out to me. So you bought Haven Builders yep. in January of 2019. That was like June, it was like June, July. So we started off holdings in January 1st, 2019. So when all holdings started. And you bought it in the middle of 2019. And then in the middle of 2019, we bought off holding spot Haven Builders. So in under three years, you've taken it from 600K to 10 million. Yep. That's pretty good. And what you're saying is they that- all, We also did the same thing with Paris Painting, just as maybe another yeah, point. What, so what, what's the time, exact timeline there? Uh, I used to have it on my whiteboard. So I'd have to go, I have to go backwards. So 10, eight, five, four, three, two, one uh probably like 2017 2018 so basically in four to five years you took paris painting from one to over ten. five to six five to six from one to over ten and haven builders from six and i did not take it there just to be clear this I was 100 jason paris did it and some nope. other guys kind of watched no nope. i'm just kidding i'm just kidding i know one of your not one of your yourself. superhuman skills is is being able to get out of the way and hire people who are better than you. I think areas. that might be my skill. I am trying to figure out my superpower. Getting out of the way seems to be something I'm pretty good at. Running, not everybody's good at that. Run a lot. I'm not that good at it though, <laughs> but I do run a lot. Committed to it. Uh, yeah, you know, I do run a lot, but I think getting out of the way, there's certainly a skill set in having the ability to initiate something and start it and then acknowledge that you're not going to be the sustainer and having the humility to step away and let someone else take those reins. And that's, and that's a hard thing to do. I think that's a hard thing to do. I've been doing it pretty consistently for a while and it's bred a lot of success for both myself and others. Um, but yeah, it's not super common in the trades. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's, there's so much, um, I mean, I think entrepreneurs in general, but maybe even more so a little bit in the trades, kind of the, the pride, you know, this is mine, the bravado. It's kind of an odd thing. You take someone that was like, wow, you have a really novel skill set. You, you founded a company 
and over five years got it to like good sustainability. Like that is not many humans on the planet can do that. Entrepreneurs yeah. are very well rewarded because it's a very unique skill set in the society. Um, it would be even more bizarre and more unique if you were good at that and you were also the right person to scale it into maturity. Because yeah. sometimes those are like opposite skill sets, right? Yeah. To be a founder, you have to be good at pretty much everything. Uh, you can't have many weak spots or blind spots because you're going to just get destroyed by those as you're going through founding. And then you have to have a high tolerance for pain. Uh, but if you want to scale something to maturity, you have to be hyper good at your specific role, whatever that is in the organization at that time. And in a lot of ways, you want someone who has a low tolerance for pain, right? Because they're going to want to professionalize it and scale it and sort of pack it together. And I was not that person uh, in my company. And I find it odd that people automatically assume that they're the right person at each scale of the company. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the, the personality traits are definitely very different and, and the requirements for skill. And I think, you know, there's this idea of, there's a lot of times it comes down to control. You know, you are willing to give up equity and control um, in certain ways to grow your business and ultimately achieve much more success. And do you want to maintain all of the small pie or smallish pie? Are you willing to maybe embrace um, these skill sets and know how people who maybe are better in certain ways or have more experience than you do in certain ways to ultimately magnify the size of your pie and still maintain a good percentage. Yeah. It was like a funny, uh, I've kind of, I've gone through the year by year examples. I talked to people of like being at 3 million, then 4 million, then 5 million. And after the $5 million mark is when uh, I sold 50% of Paris services, LLC's stake in Paris painting LLC to all of holdings. And what do you know? That's the year we go from five to 8.3. And uh, it's not a shock. It's I have very aligned and incentivized uh, partners and shareholders that want to drive the value of this asset independent of my energy and efforts. And there's something novel and unique to that where you kind of lock down. There's really no flight risk in the organization. And there are a lot of people that are really, really good at carrying the burden. uh, So I don't have to. And those are those are novel things. Yeah. So let me ask you this. So you you mentioned that you guys you have three letter letters of intent out there with potential painting partners. You have two uh, already that you've invested into and that, that you're providing the systems for. What do you look for uh, in a partner? Yeah, so, I mean, you kind of boil it down from its most fundamental concept. All Holdings is looking to make good investments, right? And so what makes good investment? It's something that there's an existing business and a base where we can step in and provide a lot of value. And we are really, really excuse my language, we're really freaking good at scaling companies and professionalizing them. There's a lot of value and acknowledgement to someone that's got it through the startup phase. And what All Holdings is not looking to do is to go into city Y and uh, start a company from scratch. There's a lot of brain trauma that happens in being the domain expert for that geography and, uh, and building a brand and getting the, the building blocks of good people started. Uh, we want to take those building blocks and scale to professionalization. And uh, that's what we're really good at. So fundamentally looking to make good investments where we see the foundations of a business that we can know, we know we can lean in and provide the value because we're going to come in and purchase 40% equity of this business. And uh, we only, it's only a good deal for us if the value increases, If it does yep. not, it's what we call a bad deal or a bad investment. So fundamentally, that's kind of what you look for. We are domain expert experts in residential repaint. So we love that, that business. Um, 
And kind of the last thing is, this is a partnership model. So it's not coaching, it's not franchising, it's partnering, which is pretty intimate. You get yoked up with someone pretty intensely for, for at least three to five years. And uh, we're looking to work with people that we want to work with just to call a spade a spade. There's a lot of good businesses out there. Um, there's a lot of interesting um, financials out there, but it's kind of like, what do you want to invite into your life and who do you want to take on as a partner? So that's certainly, there's an element of that too. Sure. Cause it's kind of a cultural fit, personality fit, a value alignment. Yeah. There's kind of like, um, there's actually, so there's a guy that's going to be visiting us next week and hopefully he listens to this cause it'll be funny, but we are not the same people at all. Uh, we don't have the same belief structures, but we both have the same values. And uh, it's kind of like do our values align and we don't have to be the same people. We don't have to like doing the same things, but ultimately is it going to work out as a partnership if we have, the, have our same values? Yeah. Yeah. Values is key. <clears throat> is there a specific size company that, that you look for? You know, we're definitely filling that out, Brandon. So we're like a few quarters into this right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I'd say it's, you kind of like need a million dollars to have that concept of being ready to play and take sure. on partnership. Um, but I don't know where the sweet spot is at 3 million is kind of nice. Cause then it's like, at that point, the owner has gotten the concept of, I have to let go of some things in my business sure. as they start to scale, you, know, you can go and in theory, you could still be at 3 million and be hands-on micromanaging everything, but they're starting to let go of some stuff a little bit. Um, but I don't know. I don't know what the magic number is. There's not like a hard, uh, like profile or what do you call it in marketing? You call it like a, uh, like an a, avatar, avatar not, like yeah. a, not like a strong avatar we've built out. We're kind of seeing like somewhere between like million dollars plus, uh, there's different, there's actually different profiles. There's the person who's hungry up and running and they want to take on a partner because they've gone through the pain to get to a million bucks. And they recognize that there's, you know, five different pain points that they're going to have to go through to get to sustainability. And they want a partner to do that with them. That's one of our partners we've taken on. There's the, Hey, I want to be, I don't want to work that hard. I've got a pretty comfortable lifestyle, but I want more for my people. Right. That's another model. That's a different profile that seems to work well. There's I'm ready to disengage in the company. It's probably going to die in the next five years. I'll sell my client lists and ladders. Uh, or I could take on a partner, potentially we get this thing to stabilize and scale. And I can have passive equity for the rest of my life at a minority interest, minority interest level. So those seem to be three that we've found so far. Uh, come back to me in a year and I'll give you a much more polished answer, but that's me going off the cuff. Yeah. Okay. Great. And then for anyone who's listening, who maybe does um, fit one of these profiles and is in that revenue range where it might make sense, is there a way that they can reach out to you or your team or, or someone? There? Yeah. Just reach out to me. I mean, this is probably the first actually call to action thing I've ever done. Uh, Cause it's been pretty like, if you know, you know, if you don't, you don't, cause we're not looking to blow it up crazy. It's partnership, not those other models I mentioned. So we do have to be a little careful in, in how fast we go um, because they each require a lot of, a lot of work. So I'm always happy to talk to painters and about what's going on in their business and help them out as much as I can. Uh, but certainly reach out to me if you think that's an interesting concept and I'll be brutally honest of, Hey, this is probably not a good fit right now, but here's where it would be a good fit. If you get to this mark. Um, yeah, I'd say just reach out to me. Uh, on what, social media what, what, what would be the best <clears throat> social media would be the best way to contact you. Social media is great. Yep. So Jason Paris, like the city. Um, you could also email me, Jason at Aleph, A-L-E-P-H hyphen M-G-M-T.com. Um, either one works. Awesome. So you being the chair of the PCA, <clears throat> I don't want to 
a lot of our listeners are already in the PCI, or at least they subscribe to Overdrive. But I guess maybe let, let's touch base briefly on on the expo and what we can expect in Albuquerque next year, yeah. and kind of some of the the benefit, maybe maybe what you see going well with the PCA, and maybe even for members who are who are already in the PCA, what what could they be capitalizing on more of that that you think they're kind of leaving on the table in terms of value? Yeah, well, I'd say for Expo, uh, if you did not come to Orlando this year, you missed out. And I think people have picked up that that that's kind of been put out there pretty heavily. Um, <laughs> you FOMO, you missed out. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was yeah. it was uh, off the hook, as the kids say. Yeah, New Mexico, we're certainly looking to ante that up, level that up, so build off the momentum. We actually had a phenomenal Expo in 2020. It was right right before COVID ended up hitting in 2020. And uh, we're pretty bummed to lose that momentum in 2021. We really picked it up this year in 2022. So 2023, 2023 Albuquerque, New Mexico, it's going to be a real banger. Uh, it's going to be a fun time. And uh, it would, it's the one event you don't want to miss throughout the year if you're yep. a painting contractor. Um, some things that the PCA is doing really well right now, I think we want to go hard on events. I know we want to go hard on events this year. That's been something that we've missed over the last 18 months, call it. Uh, two years seemingly, and it's something we do really, really well. So I want to lean in heavy on events. The education is a big part of what the PCA provides. So part of that's through just content that we pump out. A lot of that's free to the industry, uh, but there's member-specific training that I hope people are aware of uh, that they have access to, both on the technical side of painting, so training up painters, but also soon to be released the business side, uh, both accessible through what's called a learning management software or learning management system. Um, those are cool things also. So yes, like those are things that are going well at the PCA. I'll do a couple more, but it wouldn't be, it'd be probably unfair for me to not say what's going poorly with the PCA. We need to do a better job of promoting and uh, also asking our partners to help us promote all the, the value that we're starting to do in the association. Uh, the PCA has gotten a pretty, pretty fun injection of, of energy over the last couple of years. And we want to ride that momentum and ride that wave. Um, but uh, I was going to say the health insurance thing is a great example of that. I don't know if PCA members realize or know that their membership gives them access to uh, a group bartered a plan for health insurance. Wow. And that is like very not easy to do. Uh, I was very skeptical that we could do it. I'll be honest. And that we got across the finish line was pretty surprising. I've only so far, and I'm open to feedback, I've only heard good data points from people who have tried it out, both in the ease. So health insurance is typically a very difficult thing to do for your yep. business, uh, but the ease of which you can do it, and then the affordability and the, like the, the ease or the common understanding of the options that are available. Right? It's not super complicated. They provide a lot of options, but they're easy to understand. Yeah. Yeah, you don't That's have some, to Those are some high level things. <clears throat> Yeah. There's a, there's a, uh, what is it? The health insurance marketplace, right? I would spend days on that thing, you know, comparing, <laughs> you pick the three plans and then you, yeah, once the you website know, 70, got up and working back in the day. Yeah. Once it, it actually got up and work and then you have 75 different rows to compare. I mean, that was overwhelming and they got like 200 plans to pick from and that was yeah. really something. But the PCA is super cool. It's a, so people who don't know, it's a nonprofit. Um, so it's, it's underwritten by every, every major paint manufacturer underwrites the programs that we put out as well as a lot of other industry partners that are involved with painting as well. And that combined with it being a nonprofit, we're able to offer a lot to the membership and the industry at large for not much cost. And it's a pretty cool thing to be a part of. It's a way to give back, way to volunteer. Um, 
most of the people, pretty much the whole ethos is really what I call cooperation, uh, helping one another, as opposed to painting can be kind of a weird industry where uh, historically it's been a little regressive, re regressive, where it's more combative and, and uh, hey, I don't want don't to help my competitor down the street. He's taking food off my, my family's plate. Uh, if he does better, I do poorer. And uh, that's, that's just not reality in this industry. It's so fragmented. It's more of a, we all do better when we all do better mentality. Yeah. And, and that's one of the themes that I've noticed with the PCA is, is people joining recognize that when your competitor professionalizes his or her business and goes in and, and starts to get the homeowner or the, the commercial business owner, whoever comfortable and accustomed to interact with painters like that, the whole industry gets raised and, and profit margins get raised and, and employment becomes less of an issue because you can pay people more and it benefits. It doesn't hurt you. Yeah. It's the standard. What is the standard for hiring a painting contractor right now? We were joking before we started this. Like if you show up, uh, if actually, if anybody shows up to a home, you have to be the painter, just anybody and says, I paint, there's a good chance they'll make that sale, right? That's kind of what the standard is right now. The they don't even have to string together full sentences. Uh, just say, just say, I paint they'll probably sell the job and then they may or may not show up on time and may or may not do the right things. And, and that's certainly a challenge for what the expectation of a homeowner is. Uh, when you're trying to run a professional business, you, you mentioned the part about being able to pay labor. Well, another part of that is just treating labor. Well, right. Mm -hmm. It's no surprise that we are having a labor shortage in this industry. Why on God's green earth, would anybody want to get into being a painting contractor for most of these painting companies, just to call a spade a spade. The industry yep. is highly fragmented and unprofessionalized. And most people that go to work for somebody do not have uh, an A plus experience and they quickly get out and they kind of um, message or propagate that tarnish on the industry that they experienced. So yes. part of that is how, how, how the clients are treated, but a big part of that is how the labor is treated. Yeah. Yeah. Happy, happy uh, employees or even if they're subcontractors, happy workers make for happy customers. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And then how's the business treated too? I would say that's another big part of it, right? It's, uh, it's all kind of cyclical and it's all tied together of the industry has had a tough time because it hasn't been professional, right? And you have a lot of painting owners who get to the end of their, their business cycle and they are grumpy, burnt out and don't have much to show for it. And uh, that's kind of a stereotype of the industry, but the stereotypes exist for a reason. And it's like, shoot, how do you attract good, uh, you know, top level business talent into this industry when that's the expectation? I'll just tell you, you're not, you're not going to. Yeah. So you have to change that, pers that perspective and that paradigm to say, this is a, an industry that has a lot of opportunity. Uh, you can build not just a good job for yourself, but a good business. And uh, at the end of your business cycle, you can have something real to show for it. That's going to attract great people who are run their business in extremely professional ways. They're going to treat their labor well, treat the clients well. And under those conditions, the industry goes through its renaissance. I think that's going to happen. I don't know if it's in the next five years. I don't know if it's the next 20 years. Obviously, with all of holdings, we believe strong enough that that's where I'm stacking my personal chips and what's going to happen. And I want to be a part of that wave. Uh, but the industry is about to go through its renaissance. It feels like it's almost like if you go to when I did the PCA presentation mm -hmm. uh, down in Orlando, I talked about if you go to investopia.com. You talk about what are the, you know, textbook conditions that you look for when an industry is about to go through its wave of professionalization, highly fragmented industry, 
succession challenges. And uh, I forgot what the other ones were because I'm so excited. Cash flow, right? Doesn't require much capital. So it's low barrier to entry, highly fragmented, succession challenges. And I'll throw out a fourth one, which is it has like societal downward pressure. Right. So some industries that have upward societal upward pressure, like working at a tech startup or most blue for, for a while, you'd argue in like the twenties and 2010s, it was working at, you know, the blue chip companies. Like you go to the, it's, it's kind of the concept is you go to the Thanksgiving family dinner and it's like, Johnny, what are you doing these days? Like, well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm trying to think of something funny and I'm obviously not good on the phone. He's like, I'm, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, I'm an account manager at XYZ firm. And yeah. like, what does that really mean that he does? He's making minimum wage doing paperwork, right? Let's, yeah. say, let's say give him this nice title. Or you go to the Thanksgiving dinner, you say, oh, I started a painting company, right? One of those has upward societal pressure. Another has downward societal pressure. And those would be like the four factors where you'd say, wow, this, this is about to tip over. And you do want to press on every single one of those levers, if you can, to get to go through his professionalization shift. Maybe not every single one, maybe take one of them out there, but if you can touch on every other lever, that'd be good. So what do you, so when you say, what do you mean press on each of those levers? Yeah. So you talk about the industry being uh, success and challenges, right? Mm-hmm. Great minds are not entering into the painting industry. So the painting industry is typically you are found, you're not finding. So people are not seeking out the painting industry and saying, I found this and I, I went to go find something. And this is what I'm going to land on doing because I see great opportunity. It's typically uh, you hear two stories of how people got into it. I did this in college or my dad was a painter. Yeah. It's kind of like two things on how you get started. It's typically the fallback option, not where people kind of jump into it. One of the biggest reasons for that is there's nothing to show really at the end of your business. It's a very, there's very, there's a lot of difficulty in realizing the value of your equity. There's not much liquidity in a painting company. You can sell your client list. You can maybe sell your liars and tools, but the typical model, the typical pro- profile is you build a job, not a business that has value, that has inherent value and inherent equity. So I think that's an important thing to change, an important thing to shift if you want to see the industry go through its renaissance. And obviously that's a big part of, of what I'm trying to do and, and push on just to be transparent. So what- Another part of it would be, go ahead. No, 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 please, that, I'll follow up. I mean, part of that too is just the highly fragmentation of the industry, right? And you have a lot of, it's a low barrier to entry. I actually don't think that's a good thing to change. That'd be, that's the one lever that I want to, to not, not step on because there's a beauty to that and that it's really an entrepreneur's dream. Yeah. It's a double-sided dream or double-sided sword where that low barrier to entry, anyone can jump in, but at the same time, anyone can jump in, right? So you get a lot of success stories of like, I started with nothing, I had nothing, Painting gave me the opportunity and I built a big business and I built this for my life, right? So you can have, you don't want to, you don't want to lose that. And with that, I think part comes like, ah, people can just step in and do whatever they want. There's no barrier, right? Yep. But you want a societal barrier where there's a higher standard and higher expectations. So if you show up to a bid and you don't have your SH blank T together, <laughs> right? You should not get hired. And yeah. that, that's what, that's what all the painting contractors complain about is this kind of underdog or this, this kind of undercutting of, of pricing where contractors come in and they, they do out of business pricing because the average painting company doesn't last three years. That's when they find out what taxes are. Yeah. And so they're pricing themselves to go to business, but setting a standard for the industry. And that's what a lot of people complain about. Do you think that that is, I mean, do you think that makes it harder to succeed? as a painting company owner? 
<laughs> no. <laughs> so right now, all it's, uh, you could, it's certainly not a, in some ways it's not positive, right? Because you have to overcome that. And it's a tough thing. It'd be much better if the industry was, had a higher standard for everybody, for the clients, for the, for the labor, uh, for the business owner and how they're, they're kind of running their business and the expectations they have. But this is not a hard industry to be, be successful in. I'll just be honest with you. It is, uh, we do, I had way more success than I probably deserved in life because I was in the right place at the right time. And painting is, if you show up and you don't, if you do not go into rehab your first five years running a painting company, there's a really good chance that you're going to make a lot of money, right? And you don't even have to be able to string a full sentence together. If you don't, you don't have to be a phenomenal leader. There's so much demand for professional painting services. And there is such a lack of supply. This started arguably in 2008 when the recession hit mm. and a bunch of supply left the market and never came back, never came back. And it was already an issue. Then it got boom, big issue. And since that, both curves have been getting larger and larger apart because you have more boomers retiring. Millennials are the worst. They don't want to do anything hard. So they're not starting in, they're not getting into painting, right? They're not getting into the trades. So you have that demographic issue. And then the, the, the millennials that do get good jobs that are not in the trades, they buy houses and they want stuff done for them, right? They don't want to do it. They don't want to paint their own house, right? They want to hire that service. So hard to work. More and more demand, less and less supply. And it's kind of like, it's just like, that's another thing you talk about the industry. It's like, when you have those two market conditions, that is a recipe for profit. And at some point outside business minds and outside capital gets really excited about that. And they come in and, it go, and the industry goes through a renaissance and it hasn't had that happen yet. And that's where it's like, you definitely look at this industry and you see it's on the, the precipice of having a crest. Yeah. So what is your goal with Olive Holdings when, when you're making these investments? Mm -hmm. are, you, are you planning to, to keep the investments long-term and until this renaissance occurs or what is your kind of end game here with this? Yeah. So the goal when you make an investment is you want to increase the value and have stability. Those two things are not super common in painting companies. And we feel like we're really, really good at that. And as a, you know, even as a minority partner, we can step in and have that mutual incentive uh, with a founder. So ultimately we want to increase the value, more profitability, but also a big thing is stability. If we're gonna make that investment, we don't want it to be like, oh shoot, founder got hit by a turkey truck or founder decided he doesn't want to do this anymore. And now the asset has no value. That's like, that's a bad day. Yeah. Yeah. So we so want to do that, but then also, you know, kind of give that concept of, of liquidity in people's equity, right? That's not like a huge concept that people have where they think, oh, I can build something and uh, be a multimillionaire because I built a company. Most people are thinking, oh, I, I can build something and have an okay job the rest of my life. And yeah. uh, hopefully my kids want to take it up. Hopefully one of my, my employees want to buy this company and they end up being the operator. Um, I think that does, that is one of the triggers. If you talk about what, what kind of has that big shift to professionalization is when people can start to realize liquidity and their equity, that just is going to change how they approach their companies. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I went on your site and I was kind of looking and it looks like you guys have, um, and I know it's, it's still early, you know, it's probably still a little bit fluid, yeah. but you guys had a, had a pretty kind of, some typos. Uh, like, well, no, I, I wasn't talking about the type of, I'm oh. talking about the, the system that you guys have, like you're going to have these meetings, you're going to input your operating system. I'm wondering if, if anyone listening who, who thinks this might be a fit, what does it look like if they partner with you? What do you, what do you give them, you know, in exchange for, for 40% of the company, what can they expect? Yeah. 
well, I'd say we buy 40% of the company. We don't want to, it's not, we're not just getting it. No one give. no one just gets equity in a company. Uh, it would have to be invested in, it would have to be bought. Um, now, when we make that investment, we're pretty incentivized to make sure that that's a good investment. And the way we have to do that, I keep going back to is like, we have to increase the profitability and we have to make the company stable. So we have some rhythms of how we can do that. Now, if we're going to be the minority operator, we're going to come in as, you know, mostly an advisory role. Uh, but most people, so coaching is fantastic. I love coaches. I have a lot of great friends who are coaches. Sometimes people don't want to coach. They want someone to do it with them, right? They want a partner. And so it's like, we build that. We'll, we need to build out the plan idea where the, the big gaps are, the big issues are, and what are the things that the founder is going to address? What are the things where they really need all to come in and step in and say, Hey, I would rather that you guys tackle this big rock of development, right? Maybe somebody's never, you know, truly hired and trained a sales rep. Uh, who doesn't come with domain expertise. It's like, cool, I, I, I could really use you guys' help in doing that. Obviously, you have the playbook and your learning, and your learning management software and your custom software that you've built out, but uh, this I need you to do with me. And so it's, I, just to be frank, it's a little bit more custom fit to each role, sure. um, to each business, depending on what their needs are. So you go in and you basically work with them to come up with some sort of valuation of what yep. their company is worth. You, you pay them essentially around 40% of that valuation. And then you are now on board with them, them still being the primary owner, operator, yeah. decision maker, and you're on board to basically plug in any holes that they have, any they have a pretty in <laughs> A lot of it, sometimes as a minority partner, it's even like, hey, this is not my fault that the company's here, but it is my problem, right? It's like- Everything becomes your problem then too. Now, it's my, now you have, and it's kind of like a good partner to have share your problems, right? Yeah. Here's, a, here's a partnership that has scaled the company from, low single digits to eight figures or sorry, low six figures to eight figures in just a handful of years. And uh, yeah. I said that wrong. It's low seven figures to eight figures. Anyways, it's a company that scales. Well, Haven, Haven it, it, it did that. It went from, from yeah. Min, and Haven is another, another one. I was just, I do want to caution because I think we're domain experts in painting and I'm not paint. like, we're not buying spray foam companies or uh, garage door companies or anything like that. We're just focused on painting. So I think that's our domain expertise for at least a while, for a long time. And I'm one of one of uh, five seats on the board that makes those decisions. Mm -hmm. But uh, I forgot what I was gonna say. Oh, we were talking about, it's not your problem. Yes. It's not your, not your fault, not but it is your problem. problem. You gotta figure it out. Now, at some point it may make sense for everybody to say, hey, if we're gonna scale this you know, from five to 10, it might make sense for all to become not just an advisory partner that plugs in holes, but to become the true operator and become the operating partner and allow the founder to get completely passive where they could take either a niche role in their company, head, you know, coach or advocate or whatever, and get kind of a, a salary that they see fit. Uh, or maybe they want to take the Jason Paris route and get completely passive in their company and only take distributions. And that's the route that I took. And, and I've I can cut, I can give you more stories about, about middle school and high school to cut myself down, but, uh, Those I make means are going to create themselves, Jason, you have a very <laughs> important role, make way more in passive distributions. Now that I've let go than I would ever be making if I were a full-time active role in Paris painting. Right. And that's not uh, to brag or to be, um, the opposite of humble, yeah. um, but just to paint the picture and tell a story that there is a lot of value and a lot of leverage that comes when we start to utilize partnerships, it's that if that's the path that someone wants to go down. Now, a lot of people, they want a lifestyle business and they want to say, I'm the boss, I'm the man, this is Paris painting and I'm Mr. Paris and, and uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna you know, run this company till I die. And, I, and I, I might've been able to get to three, $4 million on my own without any help. Uh, I 
am certainly not the person to get to be a $10 million company. That's, I, one, I don't know if I could do that. Even if I could, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't yeah. want that weight and I don't want that pressure. So yeah, those are some, some thoughts on kind of what you get out of it. So some of the things that, that kind of the big takeaways that I just took from that is the, the, the huge benefits someone could expect is basically they're going to essentially be able to get some cash for all the work that they've put in to date so far, because you're going to value their company and write them a, a fairly sizable check, you know, to yeah. partner. They're going to now have a, a seasoned, huge team um, that is domain experts to solve problems for them, which I can tell you that a lot of those problems, they don't even know what they are yet because we they're not that. that size. Yeah. And you can do that advisory, or maybe we need to step in and do it. That's and kind you, of part of like, can we can help you like, see around the corner. It's nice to have a partner who can see around the corner and see through the fog. Yeah. Uh, when you're about to enter into something you've never done before. Uh, it's also valuable to say, I have a partner that can step in and do it with me if you have to. Yeah. And then they are also going to um, potentially have the option for a full buyout later on for or, or to get into basically a, a distribution mode where they don't have to do anything. Yeah, you could certainly, and that's kind of to the founder's decision and choices. They could do a full buyout where they sell 100% of their company. I would probably recommend not selling 100% because these are pretty good cash cows and keep on keeping my minority interest and just take those distributions for life. That's another option. Um, yeah. And typically you talked about like the, the purchase initially. What's been interesting in the handful that we've done and, and most of the ones we've looked at for the first time, the founder ends up getting a, a, a competitive salary for their role, which is <laughs> so funny, even though man. they, yeah, they get competitive because that's how we like to run businesses. We like yeah. to have stability. We don't like flight risks. So founder may not sit in that spot always, but we don't want to build a business model that's uh, architected around martyrdom. That's not a good asset. Yeah. And so they get a, a, a well-compensated role. And then on top of that, they get their distributions when there's profitability. So typically there's kind of this head trash thing of like, well, you know, I had hundred percent of the pie and now, I, now I'm losing, I'm losing 40% of the pie. It's like, losing well, it's scarcity. It's gone. It'll never come back. That's one way to think about it. That's certainly yeah. one way to think about it. Another way to think about it is you're getting a compensation package for the first time in your life that actually equaled the profitability of your company in the years past. And so yeah. everything above and beyond that is upside. And you now have partners that are going to help you drive that pretty quickly. Uh, especially if you want to look at this over the long haul about how stable it is. And you've greatly de-risked. Um, and I'm not opinion. trying to talk people into this. This is like, you're I actually am. asking a lot of probing I'm questions. I'm trying to talk people into it. I'm just trying yeah. to be honest with you on it, but this is not for everybody. We're certainly not interested in every business. Uh, I hope that more companies do what we're doing just for the industry's sake. There's not many holdings companies that are coming in as, a, as an advisory partner and purchasing equity uh, with the option to lean in and help scale, scale their business. Um, I hope that's not the case five years from now. I hope there's a lot more people that do that because I think that's going to have a positive impact on the industry being viewed as a business, not just owning a job, which can, can kind of go into those unintended consequences that we talked about for both the client and the, and the labor. Yeah. So you, you mentioned, uh, the value in having a partner that can kind of see around the corner because they've been there. They've seen those problems. I would love to get your thoughts. Um, cause a lot of people don't know what those problems are. You know, if, you, if you've never played at that level, you, you can't know it. So when, when you went, you know, let's say from 1 million to now doing north of 10 million, what are a couple of the themes that you've noticed, like how the company evolved? Yeah, I would say, man, a lot of that is structure. Some of that is structure. Some of that's personnel. Some of that's operating system. And that can be tech. That can be rhythms. Um, there's so many. When you talk about seeing around the corner, so we, 
So we, we like the value of small businesses that are focused on the trades, but we also really like real estate. So we're building these apartment buildings. And in Southern Minnesota, we've partnered with a construction company that has done this many times before, because we don't know what we don't know. And just to be frank with you, we don't want to find out the hard way. And uh, that's the, that's the risk of doing it on your own. You can certainly have a larger piece of the pie. It just might be a lot more painful to get there and take you a lot longer. Uh, so like, there's nothing in business that I do, whether it's real estate uh, or running the actual operations of a company that's not without partners, because I like to do things fast and with less risk. Uh, I'm fine not having every single piece of the pie. If I wanted everything, I would do it over a long period of time and it'd be pretty risky. Right. And that's not, that's not my personal profile. Uh, but yeah, that, that thought of like, it just, it just kind of reminded me when you said like having someone who can see around the corner and see through the fog, it's like, that's, that's actually what we do in real estate right now is we want to learn, we want to learn that stuff. I'm willing to give up sizable profits and equity to learn those things because that's not something that I'm really excited to deal sure. with the mistakes of my own. Kind of drinking, drinking your own Kool-Aid here, just in a different industry that you don't have that expertise in. You would love this opportunity. Right. And that, and whether it's a different industry or different stage of business, there's kind of a couple of ways to look at it. In a lot of ways, you know, an $8 million painting company is like a different industry than a $2 million painting company. Yeah. Right. That is not the same company at all. And uh, you may be a domain expert, have a really comfortable two to $3 million company. That's a lifestyle business. That's like, Hey, it spits off some nice cash, um, pretty passive in it but I want to see more from my people. I want the company to grow so that they have more opportunity. And it's kind of like, hey, I'll paint me a picture where I can make more cash than I am now and be more passive. Business gets larger and that creates opportunity for my key people. What does that look like? Yeah, 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 it makes sense, man. So you, you meant, well, you're a bit of an anomaly. I just want to point this out, Jason. I mean, in many ways, I think you know that, but you, you say like, oh, I, I wanted the quick, the quick route you know, not, not the long painful route, but then you do hundred mile runs that seem to be all about the long painful route. So yeah. I haven't really figured out how to rectify that in my, well, brain. there's the reality of like, so I'm talking about collapsing time. Uh, I'm in this for the long haul, right? It's just, I don't want to, so what, how could I translate that over to running? Um, I would not want to like try and figure out what a good training plan is uh, mm. for running. I'm like willing to hire a coach help me train um i see there's yeah. some metaphors that will break apart pretty quick there but the idea of like you just won't dive too deep i don't want to yeah i don't want to do a lot of risky things i'd rather have a lot more stability in life uh and i'm willing to share there's also this concept of uh some of the some of the, one of the biggest drivers to be successful in life is to share that success with others and like for me it's yeah. what other way is there any other better way to share that than through partnerships Right. And it's like, I've got four of my best friends in this office and all of our lives are going pretty awesome. It's a pretty fun deal. Right. It's yeah. like, now I would not be doing anywhere nearly as well without those guys, but it's kind of like, well, I could have my own little business. And then like, maybe I did crush it on my own and I did want to go through all that pain and it took me three decades. And now it's like, how do I share that with others? Like, wow, frick, I wish I could go back 20 years and, and we could do this together. That's what yeah. I would do. I'd, I'd, I'd try and buy a time machine and go back in time and and be like, hey man, I want you to experience what it's like to build equity. Right? I want you to experience what it's like to have a have an asset in your life that outweighs your liabilities. And that's kind of that's one of the drivers. Is one of the most motivating parts of success is that ability to share success with others. 
yeah yeah you know once you get past a certain level and and kind of like um was it maslow mavlov's hierarchy of, of needs what's his maslow's maslow's hierarchy and pavlov you have pavlov's dog so i was combining them i guess yeah I the dog the, the bell um but yeah once you get once you get past that sort, sort of hierarchy you know at some point it's kind of what's the point if you have your needs met your, your children's needs met um what's driving you yeah. and yeah when you get to that level of success it it oftentimes is about helping others. Yeah. And I like now the thing with partnerships is I certainly benefit from them too. Right. Mm -hmm. You can look at all of holdings too. Like all of holdings, when they come into these painting companies, all of holdings is designed to have incentives to benefit. Uh, but the founder proportion disproportionately will benefit as well. Sure. And so it's not like pure altruism. Part of it is just aligning the incentives of life. It's yes. saying, Hey, I only win when you win more. That's a great partnership. Right. And that's how I try and approach all my partnerships where it's like, I will only win when my partners win more. Yeah. Right. And if, and if every partner has that attitude, you can get a lot of good synergy, bring it all the way back. Synergy there, there, now we get it. All right. Yeah. Now that's why you have it on your business card. Yeah. Um, have you heard of the book slipstream by Benjamin so. Hardy? I'm going to send it to you. I sent it okay. to Nick. He didn't respond. So I'm not sure he's in. He doesn't it. know how to read. So. Yeah, I, did I, I didn't send him the audio book. So, no. but uh, yeah, it's, it's all about collapsing time. I'm not even sure it's a real book. It, it was written on Kickstarter. I read it for the first time, I think like 10 years ago. Um, okay. One of the most interesting and best books I've ever read. So no. I sent you Slipstream by Benjamin Hardy. If you, if anyone listening. Yeah, it's not my, there's like, there's nothing that I say that I typically uh, You're a thief. create. It's, it's all it. been said under the sun before. Yeah. Right, that concept of collapsing time, I stole that from people who have said it before, yeah. 100%. Well, we, we can try to say something unique, and I'm pretty sure we could spend our whole life trying to think of that, and we will never get there. Yep. Yeah. Yes. Efficiency. Um, okay, so you you had said that if you were working at yourself, at this point, you would maybe be at $3 million or $4 million. You You would be unhappy, probably. Um, but I'm really maybe. interested. It might be a sweet business that I'm passive in, but it would be a lifestyle business. It'd be different than owning an asset. I, I want to figure out exactly where you think, and, and this might be a tough question, but what were the holes that kind of got plugged or, or the people that went in and did stuff that you know you wouldn't have been able to do as well? And that's that really propels the growth. <laughs> that's super easy. <laughs> Is it? That's not a hard thing to see. Uh, I don't think I'm, there's a lot of things I'm not amazing at. Just I hope, hope to hate to burst people's bubbles that think I'm like a god or something, but uh, I'm, I mean, not. God, Jason. I'm not, nope, definitely not. Uh, I mean, you could take every single key role in our company. I am not a great VP of sales. I don't like salespeople. They drive me nuts. They're so needy and uh, they're not compliant and it just drives me crazy. But our VP of sales, Micah, this is like his gifting. He, <laughs> the way he corrals these cats and gets them to produce at amazing metrics. That is, I mean, I could never do that. I'll be, I never do that. Yeah. I also like, I like Excel spreadsheets. I'm pretty good. I have a pretty, okay. Everyone likes my quirky keyboard. It's got all these weird things to it on it. And, uh, but Eric, our CFO, he is on a world-class different level than I am. I mean, the things that he does and the way he's on top of everything and ties all together. And I'm not that I'm not yeah. that I'll just be honest. I'm not that you could even go all the way to our president, Alex. I'm a pretty good leader of people at times at times. I think I'm a pretty good leader of people. Uh, but Alex is a savant at just that. And you take mm -hmm. each one of those people too, like Micah, not great with finances like Eric, mm -hmm. not great at like being a president like Alex, 
Alex, not great at what Micah does. Not, like all these guys, they're, they're just so specialized in their roles. And that's where I look at myself and I'm like, I'm a good founder. I'm, I'm pretty good at everything, but I'm not hyper-specialized. It's hard to be good at everything and also hyper-specialized in being a VP of sales, a CFO, president of a company. Uh, even you say like even being a, a CEO, a visionary is a hyper-specialized skill set. And for me, it's been super easy. Uh, also, because that's not what I want to do. I don't like carrying the weight of all those things. Each one of those roles has a lot of weight to it. And if I have a choice to not carry that weight, just my personal preferences, I'd rather not. I'd rather dedicate more time to my family, to my hobbies, to giving back. Uh, right now, I choose the PCA as the vehicle to do that. Those are things that I would rather do if I don't have to. Sure. And for me, it's been fortunate. And I think that is the beauty of partnerships where I actually do better and I get more the more that I give up. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Too. It's a win-win. Everybody's winning. So one of the, I guess what, what I'm hearing you say is one of the biggest changes from, let's say a two, three, $4 million company to a 10 plus million dollar company is you have to get more people who are hyper-specialized as that company grows. Yeah, that's a great way of like framing in all that, all that jibber jabber I threw out there. It's exactly well, it. Yeah, I just, you know, so, so many, very few of our listeners are going to be at that eight figure mark, right? So I, I want to, yeah, I, I want to kind of try to break it down for people yeah. like, hey, here's what you know. And you're, and you're, every and I'd say is there's different. also, we're eight figures at residential repaint. I've seen companies scale pretty large with pretty simplistic uh, infrastructure models in mm -hmm. commercial and industrial. Um, so but you think residential, it, it requires more in terms of the org chart. You, you need a more sophisticated org chart to, org chart to scale residential for sure. Right? And, no and why would you say just because the, the sheer volume of jobs because they're lower ticket jobs? Yeah, that's, that's the fundamental principle is you just have more, you, have, you need more, I mean, average job size would be the key metric, right? So mm -hmm. you need more sales reps, more project managers, more coordination, more moving puzzle pieces than if your average job size is 60 grand. Right. It's just a different... Some would say it's different by a factor of 10. So if someone were running a strictly commercial business, you think you think they might be able to get to 10 plus and, and not really have all this. Yeah. You, you could actually probably steal a commercial company quite large as a, as a lifestyle business. It's more about what is the maturity of the asset and is it stable? Is there true flight risk? Is there's like a founder's risk in that? Uh, you almost want to separate the hats that you wear in your company because you're probably the founder and the president and the shareholder. But if you were to put your investor hat on and look at the company objectively and say, is this a good investment? Mm, you know, what if myself decided that I don't want to show up in two years and, and get, you know, we have, a, we have a flight risk right now. We have a president who the minute that he goes out, uh, this company is not worth anything. Uh, that's one that's like an investor's mindset of how to analyze a company. And it's healthy to do that as yourself, even if you're the sole, sole owner. Now it's difficult when you're the sole owner to feel the true weight of fiduciary responsibility. That's just not a natural thing. That's not an inherent thing for any human to do if they don't have to. So part of that plays out. We talked about the martyrdom that people live with and that martyrdom can be more than just financial, right? It can be uh, the martyrdom that you put on with some of the inefficiencies in your business, some of the uh, unhealthy cultures that can creep in um, the passivity or the, the kind of, familiarity with comfort that inhibits growth and development, all those things can be a sense of martyrdom that you carry because you are the only one, you don't, you don't have any accountability okay, right. outside of yourself. And so you kind of don't really feel the weight of that responsibility, whether it's fiduciary or all those other elements I listed. When you take on a partner, 
that paradigm shifts a little bit, a little bit. It's no longer, what will I tolerate? It's what's, what's best for the company. What's best for the yeah. business. Yeah. Like I, and you, and I was joking, you know, oh, Jason Paris is not Paris painting, but I think so many people do I'm the largest shareholder. So I'm, yeah, I'm pretty, I'm in, yeah. I have an influence there, but I do not yeah. run the day-to-day -day operations. Yeah. But, but there's so much ego oftentimes wrapped up, you know, within a, within a painting business. And one of the things I'm hearing you say is, yeah, you, you have more of a fiduciary duty, but you're also almost able to, to differentiate, you know, kind of put the business as its own thing that you focus on outside of yourself, because now there are multiple vested interests in this thing. Yeah. It's, and that's, I think that's ultimately what builds stable assets, right? It's kind of easy to close one eye and squint out the other when it's just you. Uh, but when you have those responsibilities, you just, everything becomes very transparent and yeah. there's a lot more accountability that comes into place and that can be for everyone's benefit. So you've mentioned uh, flight risk. So basically a key player at the company leaving, deciding they, they are done and the company tanking, you know, usually that being founder, founder owner. Um, you've mentioned founder's risk. What, what is founder's risk? I just made that word up. So maybe yeah. that's the unique one because it doesn't make any sense. But no, founder's risk would be, it's kind of the same thing, right? So a company's its success is limited because it's, it's inherent in the founder sitting in their seat. Okay. And the minute that founder leaves, that that vehicle, that business no longer generates value. Failing for all those involved. Turkey, turkey that's not yeah. that's not just a bad thing for the shareholder, right? Who is typically is the founder in that case. Sure. You know, suddenly their equity in the company no longer produces a return. All right. That's right. a bad deal for the stocks. It's also a bad deal for all those involved in the company, right? All the key players. And typically that's like there's probably a word for it, but a lot of founders they feel guilt around. They can kind of, that's probably the one thing that pushes them the hardest is like, they see that they are the cap or the bottleneck to their company developing to provide more opportunities for their people to develop. You yeah. These key people have this tremendous potential and potential opportunity, but your company is, it's got a lot of great things, which is why they stick around, but it's not quite allowing them to realize their full potential. And as a leader, as a founder, uh, sometimes that can be the biggest like pain point of gosh, how do I get beyond this comfort zone? Sure. Do you, do you see any other, um, do you see any other risks, I guess, that, that you think maybe are oftentimes overlooked by painting company owners? I mean, I think those are, those pretty well encapsulated, but just figured I'd throw it out. Yeah. There. I mean, yeah. there's the classic, yeah, it's kind of who I think growth has a lot of risk to it. And are you planning smartly for growth and, in terms of operations? Yep. In terms of, well, operations. So key roles, operations. Uh, how deep is your bench, right? How stable is the company? But a lot of times it's how deep is the bench? How well poised is it for growth? Um, do you have good financial stability? Do you have the mechanisms in place to fund and finance the growth? And do you have your A, B, and C contingency plans locked in to kind of pivot as you need to, to make sure you still hit the target, but in a different way? Um, there's a lot of different risks that can happen when you're growing. And sometimes, sometimes growth and success are what puts companies out of business. And we've certainly seen that before where yeah. company would be so successful that they suddenly enter into a new paradigm of how business needs to be run and they're not used to that yet. And so right. what that, what got them to that point suddenly is not just a hindrance, but ends up, you know, destroying their company. Sure. Yeah. And I, I think, so one of my, one of what I view my roles in as running this podcast is kind of trying to, to summarize things, um, at times and you, you, uh, you speak very differently from every other person that I've had on the podcast. So I just want to want to note that 
that I mean, you're really coming at this from an investor standpoint. You know, you you approaching at all these all these risks. You talking about stakeholders. You talking about um, the the different um, risks to equity, right? And and viewing it as I mean, who views a painting company ownership as equity? It is equity, though, right? If you think about it as an investor and you think about it in business, if you own your company and you run it, you own equity in it. So I, I just there's an important paradigm shift sort of here in terms of how most people think about their businesses and how you're talking about them that that I think is important to recognize because you're talking from a different level now. You're talking from a 10, 20 plus million dollar level and 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 uh, that's important. And that's what's possible when you start to enter that this mindset and these partnerships and this kind of opportunity. Yeah. Revenue certainly allows the infrastructure for stability. There's no, there's no kind of lie to that. Um, there's also there's kind of a difference between asset stability and professionalization that I want to make sure I voice because you can be a small company and be unprofessional. You can also be a small company and be professional. And that wave of professionalization should hit all stratas of business sizes. And I think that's going to be really important. I think where it's going to drive from and really originate and really propagate from are going to be those larger companies that are driven by the equity value of their business, right? And that's what drives world-class net promoter scores. That's what drives, you know, having successful businesses that companies that people want to enter into that industry. Uh, that's what going to help drive ensuring that, you know, labor is treated well because you need something to fund, you need someone to do the work to fund the right. growth. Um, I think all those three elements are low points in this industry. If you're going to look at the options available in the economy to different people, right? They're probably, we're probably bad at all three of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and all three of those can be improved, not just in large companies, but also in smaller businesses as well. So Jason, I, I'm not positive when this podcast episode is going to be released, but you do have an event that I want to touch on as well. GOMP. What is GOMP? <laughs> okay. So the GOMP is just the gathering of Minnesota painters. Uh, we do that once a quarter in, in kind of around the Twin Cities area. So today is the 31st of March. We're doing our Q2 kickoff GOMP. And uh, so that's happening today. So definitely before you do that. But if you live in Minnesota, you're a painting contractor, just search for gathering of Minnesota painters. Uh, I think it's MN painters is how it's spelled uh, on Facebook. We have a little group where we do logistics. So that's a cool thing. And then stay posted on the PCA website. Uh, the website is actually PCA paint ed for events coming up this year. There's a little bit of a teaser that we may be hosting an event in Minneapolis this summer. Maybe cool. not going to release anything, but I've heard some whispers and I've heard some whispers. That's going to be a real banger as the kids call it. <laughs> yeah. I love it. You have Jason, you want to have anything else that you want to share before we wrap up? No, man, you did a great job. This is a fun podcast. Um, any other time you want to have me on, this is a blast. So that's it. Yeah. Well, appreciate you. Appreciate you having you on, man. It was um, amazing. And, and I hope that, that some ambitious uh, painting company owners yeah. uh, who really want to grow and help other people grow will, will think about uh, reaching out to you. Cool, cool. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks. If you want to learn more about the topics we discussed in this podcast and how you can use them to grow your painting business, visit paintermarketingpros.com forward slash podcast for free training, as well as the ability to schedule a personalized strategy session for your painting company. Again, that URL is paintermarketingpros.com forward slash podcast. Hey there, painting company owners. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Give us your feedback. Let us know how we did. 
And also, if you're interested in taking your painting business to the next level, make sure you visit the Painter Marketing Pros website at paintermarketingpros.com to learn more about our services. You can also reach out to me directly by emailing me at brandon at paintermarketingpros.com and I can give you personalized advice on growing your painting business. Until next time, keep growing. Paint Ed podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and is made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPaintEd.org.